Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are holy. We thank you that through the atoning sacrifice of Christ, you make us holy. You have redeemed us. We are reminded uh, in your word that as a father um, has compassion upon his children, so the Lord uh, has compassion upon us. And so you have. That you who are rich in mercy, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, you made us alive together with Christ. That while we were still your enemies, you chose to make us your own dear children. That we might, empowered by your Spirit, go forth and tell others about this great and glorious, gracious and merciful, kind and compassionate, loving God, who is knowable, who is approachable because of the finished work of his Son, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And this we do in the power of your Holy Spirit, confident in your word and your word's ability to transform hearts and to renew minds, to awaken those that are asleep to the reality of sin and a Savior, the reality of a God who is full of compassion. We thank you, Lord God, that you are a good and loving Father, that we see even in the crucifixion of your Son the fullest and highest expression of your love, that you would not even withhold from us his life, which purchases our eternal life. And we thank you as well, Lord God, that he did not stay dead, but is now raised and risen, And as we have recited, seated at your right hand, and he is coming again, this is our hope. And we live in that hope on a daily basis, and we look forward to our hope. That is the thing that enables us to get up every morning, whether we work at a mundane job, a job we do not like, or a job that we enjoy, whether we are struggling with an addiction or an illness, or struggling through a a tense relationship. Our hope is that because the Lord Jesus Christ is coming back, We can face each day with hope and optimism and courage that your spirit is with us, that we are not alone, that we are accompanied daily by your word, by your spirit to serve you, to know you, to love you, to love others and to be loved in return. And so we give you thanks that you are this kind of father and this is how you reveal yourself to us through your word through the preaching of it, through the study of it, through the practice of it, through the steady, unrelenting presence of your Spirit who draws us ever nearer, ever nearer, ever nearer to the throne of grace, that there we might find grace and receive mercy in time of need. And so now, Lord, we pray that you would open our hearts, illumine our mind, unstop our ears, free our hands, And unbind our feet that we may know you, hear you, speak of you, work for you. Bring your word wherever we are. Father, we ask and pray this in Jesus' strong and precious name. Amen. The burden of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus declares the Lord who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth. And form the spirit of man within him. Behold, I am about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. The siege of Jerusalem will also be against Judah. On that day, I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will surely hurt themselves. And all the nations of the earth will gather against it. On that day, declares the Lord. I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness. But for the sake of the house of Judah, I will keep my eyes open. When I strike strike every horse of the peoples with blindness, then the clans of Judah shall say to themselves, the inhabitants of Jerusalem have strength through the Lord of hosts, their God. On that day, I will make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot in the midst of wood, like a flaming torch among the sheaves. 
and they shall devour to the right and to the left all the surrounding peoples, while Jerusalem shall again be inhabited in its place in Jerusalem. And the Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah first, that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not surpass that of Judah. On that day, the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David, and the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. And on that day, I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem, and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day, the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning for Hadad Raman on the plain of Megiddo. The land shall mourn each family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the Shimeites by itself and their wives by themselves, and all the families that are left, each by itself and their wives by themselves. <clears throat> now, as I said, at the end of Zechariah 11, Israel and Judah are in uh, bad shape. They had rejected Zechariah as uh, the shepherd whom the Lord appointed to lead them, and their rejection of Zechariah prompted him to quit being their shepherd, which is symbolized by his breaking the staff called favor, thereby annulling his covenant with them. Uh, and things go from bad to worse because when Zechariah then goes to demand payment for the time that he served as their shepherd, they do pay him. They pay him 30 pieces of silver, which is not an insignificant amount of money, but money really was not what he was after. What he wanted from them was their heart. He wanted repentance. He wanted some remorse from them for having rejected him as their shepherd and then perhaps pleading with him to once again be their shepherd. They did not. And so he symbolizes this break in brotherhood by breaking the staff called union, symbolizing the fact that the brotherhood that would have existed between Israel and Judah is now broken. And so that any hope of a future reunion of the two nations uh, is in serious, serious jeopardy. And so the chapter ends with both nations being led deeper into the darkness under the leadership of a, a foolish and worthless shepherd. The blind leading the blind, if you will, further into the darkness. And the optimism uh, that had characterized the earlier sections of Zechariah um, seems to be on life support. And that there's a sense that both nations are once again at risk of losing God's favor. You read that chapter, and you read really the, the chapters leading up to it, really beginning in chapter 9, and there's a sense in which chapters 9 to 11 of Zechariah are like the, the second book of a trilogy or the second movie in a trilogy. Remember, the first book of any trilogy starts out all bright and hopeful. right? We meet the, the plucky hero who gathers around himself this sort of odd collection of characters who join him in this quest to defeat some evil that has come upon their land. And uh, at the end of that first book, they are able to defeat the, the evil, and everything seems to be well. Then comes the second book, and things begin to take a turn, because the, the bad guy that they thought they had defeated at the end of the first book really wasn't defeated after all, and it seems to be gaining strength and power. And our hero and his companions are not quite as sure about themselves or their mission. And the second book seems to end on a really dark and minor note. It sort of ends in this question, this anxiety, this uncertainty. And that leads us into the third and the final book, which is like chapters 12 to 14 of Zechariah. Things change slowly at first, but then the, the dawn starts to break. There seems to be a shift in the fortunes of our hero and his collaborators. And they begin to push back ever so Gently, ever so slowly, they push back against the darkness until at last, by the end of the book, 
the bad guy is defeated, all of his cohorts are defeated, everything is bright, everything is happy, and everyone lives happily ever after. Strangest things are, in chapters 12 to 14 of Zechariah, these last three chapters are like the last book in a trilogy. If there is a theme for these chapters, I would call it after darkness light. Because beginning in chapter 9, especially when the the burden, the oracle is delivered by Zechariah against the nations and Israel itself finds itself as a nation enwrapped in that darkness, the light begins to dawn beginning in chapter 12. And if there's a theme for chapter 12, it would be this, that when all seems lost, God is still our only hope. If you want to use a a more biblical phrase, the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not overcome it. So when all seems lost, God is still our only hope because the light shines in the darkness and the darkness does not overcome it. It's a similar theme, if you will, to the entire book of Revelation. One of the major themes, if not the major theme of Revelation, is that no matter how dark the darkness, the light still shines. And the light will keep on shining until the Lord returns in victory. That is a consistent theme in chapters 12 to 14 of Zechariah. If you can read Zechariah 12 to 14 with that hope in mind, that God is eventually on that day going to turn the tables against evil, establish his kingdom, punish the rebellious, reward the faithful, you begin to get a sense that there is an optimism that ends this book. After darkness, light. When all seems lost, God is still our only hope. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And we're going to unpack uh, Zechariah 12 as follows, that God has plans uh, to frustrate and defeat his enemies. He saves his people through strong leaders who lead strong followers. And then the grace of God generates genuine sorrow for sin and its consequences. So he has a plan to defeat Uh, And his enemies, he has a a plan to save his people through strong leaders, and his grace generates a genuine sorrow and repentance for sin. So let's look at that first one, that God has plans to frustrate and defeat his enemies. The chapter opens with a rather ominous statement, the burden of the word of the Lord. Some translations will substitute the word oracle. Uh, Burden is the better Word because it, it conveys this, this sense in which whatever Zechariah is about to say conveys both bad news and good news specifically for Israel. It's the same word that he begins chapter 9 with. But there in chapter 9, the burden that Zechariah delivers is directed at the nations that have uh, abused and uh, oppressed Israel. Now he's speaking to Israel. Bad news and good news. The bad news is Israel is uh, going to be attacked. They have declared their independence from God. They have come out from under the uh, umbrella of his protection, making themselves now vulnerable to attack from their enemies. The good news is that even though a covenant was broken in Zechariah 11, it was Zechariah who broke the covenant, not the Lord. That he has not abandoned them that he is still their shepherd and they are still his sheep, the flock of his pasture. That though they will suffer attack, God promises as their father, as their shepherd, as their Lord to watch over them and to protect them and to provide for them. That he's going to make Jerusalem a, a cup of staggering. And that he is going to make it like a stone so heavy that anyone who tries to lift it will end up hurting themselves and be gashed against it. When all seems lost, God is still our only hope. And so the chapter begins with this declaration of this news, but also of God's ultimate and absolute sovereignty over everything. When he says the burden of the Lord, uh, the word of the Lord concerning Israel, thus declares the Lord, who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. So here God is declaring that the events that are going to take place are taking place under his sovereignty. 
He's overseeing it. He created the heavens. He created man. So nothing that's going to take place is outside of his knowledge, outside of his power to deal with. And the imagery that accompanies all of that, the, the metaphor that Zechariah uses, horses struck with blindness, Jerusalem like a cup of staggering, a stone that if it's so heavy, if you try to lift it, you end up gashing yourself. All of that is meant to engage our imagination, this vivid language. God intends to capture our hearts so that we will trust him for our salvation. He says that for the, house, for the sake of the house of Judah, even though all of these things are going on, God says, for the sake of the house of Judah, I will keep my eyes open. I'm not going to fall asleep on the watch. This language right out of Psalm 121, verse 4. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. That God is always watching out for his people, even when his people reject his leadership. You see, the mercy of God here, that even when we would turn our backs on him and go our own way, saying, no, I'm going to abandon any sort of hope or trust in you, God is still watching out for his people. He's not a, a passive observer. Some of you I know are, are Marvel people. And you probably watched the What If series on Marvel. And you wrote about the Watcher. You know, in, in Marvel, the Watcher just observes things. Never interferes. Always watches. Well, God watches, but he intervenes actively into the lives and history of his people. He is not passive, but he is always active. We may not see his hand at work, but his hand is always at work to protect and to defend his people against their enemies. Another thing that occurs in this chapter, and on into chapter 13 as well, is this recurring use of the phrase, on that day. And I was deliberately deliberate in how I read it. Because whether it's on that day or the day of the Lord, that phrase, I think it's between chapters 12 and 13, it's used like 17 times. That's a lot of occurrences in a very compact space. On that day, it's a phrase that also is a favorite of the prophets. It appears most often in the prophets. It refers to God coming to earth at some future time to establish his kingdom, to punish the rebellious for their rebellion, to reward the faithful for their faithfulness. In the New Testament, we read about it in 2 Peter, um, in the New Testament, the day of the Lord return, refers to the return of Christ. We don't know the exact time or date of the events that Zechariah describes, but you think about it, he's talking to people who have been in captivity, have been restored to their homeland, who are threatened with attack, thinking that's it, this is it, We've, you don't survive a second captivity, if you will. But here Zechariah is saying, no, 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 you're going to, you're going to be reminded and you're going to remind your children and your children are going to remind their children and so forth until that day comes, you're going to pass on to them this singular hope that God is coming back and he is going to punish the rebellious and he's going to reward the faithful. We don't know when that day is, but it's coming. And we are living in that hope. That's why I prayed the way I prayed in my prayer. Because if we have no hope, of a future justice, if you will, if we have no hope of a future balancing of the scales, there is really very little purpose to the life that we live. It makes no sense if there's no ultimate, no absolute, no true justice. So God is communicating to Zechariah that no matter how bad things look, no matter how high prices of gasoline or food, whether there's an abundance of food or not, our hope is not in the prices going up or down, whether there's food or not, but our hope is in the God who provides what we need when he knows we need it. It's a way of reminding ourselves that the things that go on around us are meant to draw us and drive us further into a deepening trust of God. That the kingdoms of this earth are not the kingdoms in which our hope is based but the kingdoms of this earth, as the Revelation says, will become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ, who rules over all. 
And so that recurring phrase, on that day, the day of the Lord, is meant to drive us further and deeper into a sure and certain hope. This term that refers to a series of visitations by God throughout the history of the Bible. The two most notable manifestations of on that day are seen in the New Testament. The Incarnation, long predicted by the prophets that God would come. And Pentecost, the descent of the Spirit, where God empowers his people to be his witnesses and to go out into all nations and make disciples, teaching them everything that Jesus has taught us and baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So in addition to all of that, there is this continual use, this definitive use of the personal pronoun I. Just listen, I mean, I read it in the, in the text. 12.2, I'm about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering. 12.3, on that day I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone. 12.4, I will strike every horse with panic. When I strike every horse with, uh, with blindness, I will make the clans of Judah. I will seek to destroy all the nations. This I sense that God is now going to intervene. Because in the history, read the history of the Old Testament, you get a series of people that God raises up only to disappoint. It starts with Adam and Eve, it continues through Noah, it continues through Abraham, it continues through Moses, through all the lines of the kings, and even of the prophets, and even of the priests, all raised to lead Israel, and only to fail, to save and to deliver. And so God says, now I will undertake what human beings created in my image who are fallible have failed to do. It also tells us that God is intimately concerned and involved with what happens in our lives. He's not standing far off. Not directing things, if you will, from a distance, but now is intimately and personally involved and connected to what happens to his people. He wants to work his salvation. He wants to work his will in a way that for us is known and experienced on a personal and on an intimate level. He he has sent his servants, but there is a day coming, and we have experienced it by faith in the coming of Christ, in which God will no longer stand off, but he will involve himself directly by taking on our flesh and living a perfect life that we could not live. That personal pronoun I also tells us that God knows the plans that he has for us, plans to give us a hope and a future, that there is more to this life than what our eyes can see and our ears can hear and our tongue can taste and our hands can touch. When God sends, what that means then is when God sends a trial, if he knows the plans he has for us, that means when God sends a trial, he also sends the relief. When he sends the affliction, he also sends the comfort. When he sends the problem, he also sends the solution. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians, right? No temptation, he tells the Corinthians. No temptation has happened to you that is uncommon to man, but with every temptation, there is a way of escape. There is a way out. There is a way to seek and to trust in God's delivering power. The nations for sure will attack Jerusalem, believing it to be weak and defenseless. But they are in for a surprise. Because the Lord will make Jerusalem, as he says, a cup of staggering. Drunk in their hatred of the city, if you will. Blinded by their anger toward it. They will be staggered and unable to fully accomplish the damage that they seek to inflict. Also making Jerusalem such a heavy stone that whoever tries to lift it will only hurt themselves. They will bash themselves against the rock of ages. God promises also to strike every horse and rider with panic. All of those that would be used, if you will, whether it's military or political or social, those things will just be blinded and unable to carry out their attack. The irony here is that that curse of blindness and madness is a curse that God has pronounced upon Israel for their disobedience. In Deuteronomy 28, 28, God through Moses says, Madness and blindness and confusion of mind appear in a list of curses for Israel's disobedience. Here God turns the tables 
and lets their enemies experience that madness and that blindness and that confusion. Psalm 76, verse 6, the psalmist Asaph writes, At your rebuke, O God of Jacob, both rider and horse lay stunned. So what does this mean? What does this mean for us? If, in fact, what Paul says in Romans 15, 4 is true, that whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope, how are we to understand what God is saying to us through Zechariah? Part of what he's saying, part of what it means, we read in 2 Peter 3, that in light of the knowledge that all of this is one day going to be consumed, and, and, and wrapped up in one cataclysmic event at the day of the Lord. He says, what kind of people ought you to be in holiness and godliness? So what does this mean for us? It simply means go about your lives as godly and holy people. Live by faith in the word of God, in the son of God, in, in the God of gods and Lord of lords and in the power of his Holy Spirit. Acknowledge the fact that we live in a fallen world that will affect and influence in ways that we do not like nor appreciate, but God is greater yet. What kind of people ought we to be in holiness and godliness? People that are committed to having children and to raising those children in in discipline and instruction of the Lord. People who are committed to saying, this world is redeemed by God and is worth living in and worth raising children in and worth sending those children out into the world as as an archer would send out arrows to proclaim the good news of Christ. It's a way of talking to your co-workers at work who complain about gas prices and shortages and this and that and to say, you know, there is a peace that we can have in the midst of this, a peace that... By God's grace, I am experiencing even now. And I'd love to share it with you. There's a grounding to tell your child who is nervous or anxious about things going on at school, things that they have heard, things that they're not sure about. And you can begin to talk with them and and explain to them from a biblical perspective what God says about certain things and to share with them. It's about offering comfort to an aging parent who finds daily they're losing touch with reality because they can't seem to remember things as well as they used to and are frightened. And you're frightened for them. And you're frightened with them. And you can tell them there's a day coming when your memory will be perfect, when your body will be whole. There's a day coming And we can experience part of that now, in that moment of prayer, in that moment of silence, in that moment of confession, in that moment of sharing, in that moment of fellowship. The things that were written beforehand, I love why Paul says that and how he says it. So that through through endurance and through encouragement of the scriptures, not simply endurance, not just bearing it, but the encouragement of the scriptures, that as Christ has borne our sufferings, so we can bear the sufferings that we endure in this world with hope that one day those burdens will be finally and ultimately lifted. So what does that mean? It means that we should be people who live lives of godliness and holiness. Second, it also means that we live with the same hope and the same promise made by the same God that Zechariah believes in. That his God is nothing if not consistent. That his message from Genesis to Revelation is the same. That when all hope seems lost, God is still your only hope, our only hope. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not, will not, nor will it ever overcome it. That his church will always be under siege. The church will always be perceived as defenseless, weak, and vulnerable in the eyes of the world. But remember, way back in Zechariah 2, God made a promise to his church. He said, I will be a wall of fire all around, and I will be the glory in her midst. 
when you think about the fact that Jesus Christ died for our sin, and when he was raised from the dead, Jesus essentially destroyed the two greatest fears that we have. That our sin would separate us from God, and that death would separate us from him and loved ones forever. So Christ has defeated the two greatest enemies, the two greatest fears we will ever face. So how could we not endure trial or suffering or persecution and be frightened by that? Because the very means, remember, the very thing that the enemy threatens us with is the very thing that Christ has conquered. What's the worst thing you think that can happen when you're persecuted? I'm going to die. Paul addresses that. That's not a, from, from one point, it's a separation from our loved ones, but in the ultimate sense, it brings us into the very presence of God, whose presence we long to be in, which is our hope. And so the church is always going to face trials, always going to face attack from without, and it's going to also face attack from within. As the abuse report concerning the SBC has revealed to us, as well as other moral failings of other pastors and other abuses within other churches, as well as a progressive liberalism that sort of begins to water down the gospel, the church is always going to face these things. These aren't new. It's been going on since the garden. Has God really said? That's the one message, the one question that keeps getting asked by those who would challenge the authority of the Scripture, who would challenge the authority of God, who would challenge the existence of the church. Did God really say this? And the answer is yes. It may be hard to understand. It may be hard to comprehend. It may even be hard to explain. But he said it. And our responsibility is with his Spirit's help to comprehend it and to live by it. And then finally... Uh, actually, that is my <laughs> that is the last point of that. I just slid right into that from point number two. Um, <clears throat> the church will always appear weak, powerless, and defenseless, but she is not. Why? Well, Jesus, when he talked to the apostles, he asked them, "Who do you? Who do men say that I am?" And then he asked directly, "Who do you say that I am?" Jesus said, "You are the Christ, the Son of God." Peter, uh, Jesus renames Peter and says, Upon this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That's why the church will always endure. Because it's not simply, we're not in always a defensive position. We have the sword of the Spirit. We have the Word of God. We have the power of the Spirit to proclaim that Word, to, if you will, offend with the truth. Remember, the weapons of our warfare are not with flesh and blood. They're not with weapons, if you will. But they are with the word of God. They are with the word of our testimony about what God has done and continues to do through his son. The church is also founded upon the rock of ages, and men and women have for years dashed themselves against that rock, and he is indestructible because he is alive. The church will always be despised and vulnerable in the eyes of the world, but the Spirit of God will see that the church vulnerable will always remain the church victorious. So God has a plan to frustrate and defeat his enemies. He also, and he does that through saving his people through strong leaders who establish strong followers. Verses 6 through 9, the prophecy uh, continues, that on that day I will make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot in the midst of wood, like a flaming torch among sheaves, they shall devour to the right and to the left all the surrounding people, while Jerusalem shall again be inhabited in its place in Jerusalem. And the Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah, first that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not be surpassed, may not surpass that of Judah. On that day the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David, and the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. And on that day I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. The clans of Judah refer to the leaders of Judah, the heads, if you will, of that. Remember, Israel suffered because of poor leadership. 
But God promises here to raise up a, a new generation of leaders. It's one of the things that certainly we at Maranatha are committed to. That's why we sort of have begun from the, the bottom up to, to rebuild and reconstitute the, the way that we have done the diaconate. And we're praying, I want to ask for your prayers as well, that God would raise up more elders that can serve and proclaim and teach his word. Because leadership is essential to the, the livelihood and the sus, uh, sustainability of God's church. The, the things that are necessary for the church to survive depend very, very much on the quality of its leadership. But even more so, it depends on the quality of the followers as well. That these leaders raise up and, and gather to themselves followers, not of them, but of Christ. Because Paul talks about following him as he follows Christ. That's the goal, is to have leaders who are following Christ, who gather followers, who follow them as they follow Christ. The leaders of, of Judah here are referred to as a, a blazing pot and a flaming torch that will consume their enemy as a fire consumes hay and stubble. And the idea, too, is if, if Jerusalem represents the church as a whole, then these leaders, the, the proclaimers, if you will, of the truth, they're sort of the, so there's, there's the city of God, if you will, in Jerusalem. And then the leaders go out because the gates of hell will not prevail against those who carry the truth into battle, if you will. And they go out like a, a blazing torch and a, a flaming, um, a, a blazing pot. If you know your Bible, you may think, I've, I've heard that phrase before. And you think, where have I heard it before? I hope Pastor Malanga tells me because it's there. Genesis 15, when Abram, before he's Abraham, looks at the stars by God's direction, and God says, those stars, your descendants are going to be like those stars. And then Abraham is put into a sleep. After he divides, he sacrifices some animals. And we're told that a, a blazing pot and a flaming torch pass between the pieces of the animals. There's a representation symbolically, metaphorically, of the Holy Spirit. So these leaders of Judah who go out, go out not in their strength, but they go out in the strength and might and power of the Holy Spirit. This takes us back to Zechariah 4.6, when Zechariah talks about Zerubbabel and sells Zerubbabel not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. So when we engage with those that are doubting or vengeful or bitter toward the church, our response is not to be as bitter or as vengeful as they are. But with the blazing torch and flaming pot of God's truth, simply explain. This is what the gospel says. This is who the church is supposed to be. This is who Jesus is. And then you respond that way. The way that Jesus deals with the Pharisees, the way that Jesus deals with the woman with the issue of blood, the way that Jesus deals with his apostles, the way that Paul addresses his churches, sometimes forcefully, but always bringing them back to the truth. <clears throat> we also see this empowering right at Pentecost, the way God works it out. And such is the power of the Spirit here that... Zechariah says, even the feeblest, even the weakest, is going to be like David, going out to confront Goliath. You come at me with spear and shield and sword, says David. Remember what David said? I come against you, not with a sling and five stones, although that's what he was carrying. He says, I come against you in the name of the Lord my God. That's how we address that's how we engage. That's how we confront. In the name of the Lord our God. There's an old saying that, the, that Satan fears the weakest saint when they get on their knees to pray. I think that's still true. Because even the weakest saint can pray. Even the feeblest saint can say, God help me. And he will. He gives power to the powerless. He gives strength to the scrawny. He gives courage to the cowardly. 
And they would be like that brave David. Like, if you will, our Lord, who kneels in the garden and says, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. So God has a plan to frustrate and defeat his enemies. He has a plan to save his people through strong leaders who build strong followers. And then lastly, the grace of God generates a genuine sorrow for sin and its consequences. And this is probably the, the most famous, if you've ever read anything from Zechariah, outside Zechariah 9 about you know the, the uh, Lord coming on a donkey, you probably have heard this part of Zechariah uh, 14 where it says, God says, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day, the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning for Hadad Raman on the plain of Megiddo. The land shall mourn each family by itself and then so forth. David, Nathan, Shimei, Levi. You get the sense that after verse 9 of Zechariah 12, you kind of expect God to lead his people in a victory march. You know, take a victory lap around the city. Yeah, we did it. We beat all of these people and all of that. But there's no celebration. There's no joy, if you will, when you get into verse 10. Because instead of celebration, you get mourning. Instead of shouts of joy, you get weeping. Instead of victory songs, the people sing songs of sorrow and lament. And you have to ask, why is this? Why this change, this drastic change? Well, it's because on the same day that God rescues his people, he reminds them why he had to rescue them in the first place and how he had to rescue them. Remember, they rejected him. They broke covenant with him. But he did not break covenant with them. And Zechariah compares the mourning over the one whom they have pierced, God referring to himself, to this very odd occasion, this, this morning that took place at Hadad Raman in the plain of Megiddo. What happened there? You've got to go back to the book of Kings, when good King Josiah goes out to battle against Pharaoh Necho, I believe, and Josiah is killed in battle. He's a good king. A lot of reforms that Josiah brought into place. And there is great weeping and mourning over the death of this good king. That kind of mourning. It's the kind of mourning that our nation went through, if you remember 9-11, or even now has gone through when we hear of shootings in Buffalo or Uvalde, and as most recently took place in a church in Alabama. It's that kind of mourning of a national tragedy. It just moves us. It just consumes us. It just takes over our emotions. It's an involuntary thing because it's, we just grieve so deeply. And the families that are mentioned here Really, they represent the four primary institutions that were responsible for leading, if not saving Israel. The house of David and his whole family. Well, he's the monarchy. We're not going to be saved through political leadership because eventually they all fail. Then you have Nathan who represents the prophets, if, if you will, the, the judicial aspect of things. that we, we seem to think, well, we'll get the right people in place and on the court and things will always go our way and things will be restored. That's going to not work either in an ultimate sense to save us and to redeem us because our problem is not political, it's not judicial. Nor is our problem, if you will, the fact that we have the academy, the, the Levi the, and Shimei, Levi and his grandson Shimei, the priests we can't trust, if you will, those who are in the leading, let's say, leading religious institutions because they are not always faithful. So it always comes back to trusting in God. Always comes back in trusting the God who institutes government, who institutes and places people in positions of power to establish justice and to teach and to hold them accountable based on what the Word of God says. So there's great mourning because each one of these has failed just as we have failed. Because only one person in all of history has perfectly fulfilled all three offices of king and priest and prophet. And he was nailed to a cross. He is the one. It's Jesus here that they have pierced and whom they mourn. Because it's our failure to do what's right in God's eyes. That's why the Lord 
took matters into his own hands and sent his only begotten son into the world that whoever believes in him would not die but have everlasting life. These are not crocodile tears that, are pe- that people are weeping here. And, you know, to understand fully the depth of God's grace, we have to come to grips with the depth of our sin. We don't like that because that will take us to places we don't want to go. Places that are hard to go. Hard things, awful things that I've said to my wife and she has said to me. Awful things that I have said to my parents. Awful things that they have said to me. And if they haven't said, they're thought. But I've hidden them in my heart. And I've tucked them away. And I've wrapped <laughs> bubble wrap around them to keep them safe because I don't want to touch them. I don't want anyone else to know about them. But unless that is unwrapped and allowed to bubble up like the uh, Obscura in, uh, in, in Harry Potter fame, unless that just comes out, it can't be dealt with. Unless that ugliness is seen for what it is, The grace of God cannot flow into our lives to the extent that it can wash it away forever. That's why there's a spirit of grace that is poured out upon us. That's why there's these pleas for mercy. Because it's not as if God will say, I'm not going to forgive. I'm not going to allow that to be washed away. It's like the very opposite. I've been pierced for you. There's five wounds in my son's body that plead for your forgiveness. So let it out. Confess it. Be gone with it. Be done with it. And allow my grace, allow my mercy to flow and to pour into you that it could then pour out from you into the lives of others. It's the reason why Paul can say, I am the chief of sinners. It's not hyperbole. It's because he understands the depth of his depravity. We don't like talk like that because it's, it's just too painful. But it's so vitally necessary. Because the happiest people, the most joyful people are those who know that they have been forgiven the greatest debt. Remember the woman weeping at Jesus' feet. And he asks the Pharisee, and he tells the Pharisee the story of two men who owed a debt. One a small debt, one a great debt. And both men had their debts forgiven. And Jesus asks, which one do you think loved their creditor more? And the Pharisee said, I suppose it's the one who had the greater debt forgiven. Yes. Not realizing the Pharisee at that moment, Jesus was talking about him. The woman there recognized the depravity of her sin. And she wept at Jesus' feet. But there was a Pharisee. If he, this man were truly a prophet, he would know what kind of woman this is and what her reputation is. He couldn't get it out. So that part of recognizing our sin is essential to experiencing grace. In his commentary on this passage, which is a good commentary, a man by the name of Mark Boda uh, writes that in the contemporary church, we know little of the message of Zechariah 12, 10 to 14, with its focus on God's work and a penitential depth of his people. In an era of easy believism, we preach a faith that requires intellectual acceptance of key tenets of doctrine rather than the transformation of our affections. At the same time, we often preach a faith that becomes another human work, not a work of God in human hearts. We must teach the doctrine of deep repentance as God's work. Mourning our sin leads to repentance of our sin. And repentance of our sin leads to confession of our sin. And confession of our sin leads to confession of faith in Christ. And confession of faith in Christ leads to forgiveness and salvation and the depth of his grace and mercy. But you have to fall before you can get up again. I'm a big fan of Christopher Nolan's Batman trilogy. I don't know if you are, but remember at the end of the very first Batman movie, Batman Begins... Alfred and Bruce Wayne are in the bottom of an elevator shaft as Wayne Mansion, stately Wayne Manor, is on fire. And Bruce Wayne is lamenting what he has done, that he's destroyed his father's legacy. And Alfred, who's more or less his caretaker, says, 
the, Lane, the, the Wayne legacy is much more than brick and mortar. And then he looks at Bruce Wayne and he says, why do we fall, sir? It's so that we can pick ourselves up again. Why do we fall? Why does God lead us to the cross? It is not so that we may pick ourselves up again, but God leads us to the cross that we might be picked up by him and born again by faith in his son. Because having rejected the Lord as our shepherd, we have strayed off trail and we are stumbling in the dark. But then, like Zechariah 12, the light dawns and we see it. Or rather, we see him. We see him whom we have pierced. We see the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. We see the Lamb of God, slain from the foundation of the world, who is the atoning sacrifice for Christ. And suddenly, suddenly, we understand the God that we killed is the God who saves us. The shepherd we rejected is the Savior who redeems us. He's the light of the world. He was dead, but now he's alive. Because the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This is our hope. Always. You think about that. Let's pray. Uh, our Heavenly Father, we, uh, we thank you that you do not leave us in our mourning but there comes that moment when that, those tears of mourning are transformed by grace into tears of joy at the news, the good news of salvation by grace through faith in Christ. We look forward to the day when our hope is realized, when the hope spoken in Zechariah, given us in the gospel, will become faith transformed into sight. Until then, keep us faithful let us live lives of godliness and holiness for your sake, for the sake, O Lord God, of your Son, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.